Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. From Radio New Zealand National. Nearly 4,000 New Zealand species are threatened in some way. And while the Department of Conservation has resources to target a few of those, many others are slipping through the cracks. This is where the newly launched Endangered Species Foundation comes in. It aims to put a spotlight on the most threatened species that aren't currently getting enough help and put money towards key conservation projects that they hope will make a significant difference. Alison Balance meets Endangered Species Foundation founder, botanist Mike Thorson, and trustee and University of Otago zoologist Phil Seddon to talk about their top ten list. And she begins by asking Mike how it all started. It was a sort of a chance conversation when I first started my career in conservation and uh, parents were a wee bit unsure whether you could actually make a career in conservation in those days and we were talking about it and about the issues of getting money and all sorts of things and my father was involved in trusts and estates and wills and made an offhand comment of, well, it shouldn't be too hard to raise a million dollars for conservation. And I sort of let it slide thinking, hmm, probably not as easy as all that. But the comment stuck in my mind all that time and then 20 years later came back to New Zealand and thought, well, I've got some spare time, it's a great concept and we really, really do need to raise money to help support conservation. Trouble is we don't need a million dollars now, we need probably quite a bit more. So that's how it started. So this is about bringing philanthropy together with conservation? Yeah, it's about being funders and facilitators to, to the people who are doing the conservation work. So we do need to be bearing in mind that there are a whole range of things, particularly you know smaller, harder to see things, that are also just as endangered as, as some of these cute things like kākāpō and kiwi, and, and also need the work. And they have the added bonus, actually. They're cheaper to save than some of these big, spectacular things. How big is the endangered species problem here? It's huge. New Zealand's kind of an extinction capital of the world, along with some other island systems. So we have thousands of endangered species, and we really only can work on a handful uh, with the intensity that's needed. Just picking up on Mike's point about this taxonomic bias, we see it in everything. We, we see it not only in conservation actions, even very intensive actions like conservation translocations. What we choose to work on is really a, a tiny subset of what we should work on, and sometimes not even the, the most endangered or most at risk. But if we bear in mind that there may be 4,000 endangered species out there, uh, that, and many of them not being worked on at all, just because they're, they're off the public profile, I think the, the great press that we've got out of uh, work on things like kakapo and takahe and uh, kaki, black stilt, is fantastic for raising the public profile. But it also creates the impression that the, there is maybe a handful of birds that need this intensive work, and if we could just crack that problem, then we're, we're good. And, and New Zealand's certainly a pioneer, I think, in a lot of conservation actions, and we get very comfortable about patting ourselves on the back about being innovative and you know, thinking outside the box and doing things on a shoestring. But we can certainly up the game, I think, in terms of the biodiversity that we still have here to protect. 
And part of that is raising public profile about all those other kinds of things we need to work on. Now, you've come up with a top ten list. Yes. Do you want to tell me about some of the things on the list and why you've chosen them? Well, it was an interesting process. We had a lot of people involved in it, and it's always been theoretically possible to say one species is more endangered than another. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of actually being able to do that, it's actually really, really tricky. So we worked with a few criteria that were common sense and generally accepted in the conservation biology field to start working through the lists of the endangered species in New Zealand and, and saying, well, yes, this one qualifies and this one, these ones don't. So we narrowed it down and then just continued working on the existing information and 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 made the, the selection. The, the top ten fell out fairly easily and then there was a suite of other ones, about another 40 species that are pretty close to it but for some reason didn't quite make that cut, mainly because we didn't quite know enough to have confidence that they should be in there. It was quite frightening in, a, in another way because the information available is, is actually, there's not a lot. It was an interesting process. Um, I was involved with sort of reviewing some of the information that Mike had compiled and you might imagine it's quite easy to say, well, this is rarer than that and it's, it's very well, but but in fact, there's a lot of different criteria. You say, well, it's a naturally small population, perhaps, or um, it's got a limited distribution anyway, uh, whereas something else might be more numerous, but it's in decline, there are greater threats, or uh, maybe there are some where the, the action that we need to, to turn that around may be well-known, it may be un not very well-known, it may be very expensive, or it may be relatively cheap. So coming up with that kind of top ten was, was interesting. So there was a wider advisory group, and we all all had a go at our rankings, and I'm, um, I'm sure they were all over the place and, at the start because everyone sort of felt that their, 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 their favourite endangered species should probably be on the list there somewhere. And uh, it's really interesting when you start to do this exercise how few of those charismatic species actually make it into those, those top ranks. The one that came out number one, and it was almost a test of the system, was, of course, Maui's dolphin. So if that hadn't come in somewhere very close to the top of the list, you'd have to think you were doing things wrong. But, yeah, it did come out at number one. We did get some confidence in there. It's important to remember when looking through the list that it's based on current effort that's been put into there. So a lot of these um, species that are very, very rare or very highly endangered aren't on the list because people are actually working on them and that's giving them some certainty into the future. For that reason, you know, it came to an interesting mix where we had one mammal, had, uh, only one bird, the fairy turn up in Northland. What else have we got on it? Mokohinao stag beetle. Which, which is, is a fine-looking stag beetle, It's a wonderful-looking creature. It's got these great big antlers that they, they use when, when fighting. But the, the thing, when I looked at the information that was about this uh, beetle, it... The amazing thing is it really only sits on one rock stack that doesn't have rats on it. It's a, this is the last place of this thing's sitting. You can imagine to turn that around doesn't require a lot of work. We're very good at controlling rats just over find huge areas. Rock stack we just need rats. two rock stacks. We've, <laughs> we've got double the population. We've got an insurance population right there. But it does sound easy, but when you've got so few of them, how do you move animals from one rock stack to another rock stack without having a great risk to the population that's living living on the original rock stack. So it has to be really carefully thought out and planned and, and possibly will need captive breeding of stag beetles to increase their numbers before we take them to the to the second rock stack. 
Uh, luckily, the rats have been removed from the Mokihina Islands, so there's lots of islands to take them to. And another lucky one is, is that um, stag beetles are actually quite popular as a pet overseas, particularly in Europe and Japan. So people know how to look after stag beetles in captivity. So we just need to get a few of the Mokihina stag beetles into captivity, breed them up, and take them there. But like anything, it needs time and it needs some, some money. Not a lot of money, probably, but it does need it. So what's in it number three? Oh, so the Canterbury Nobbled Weevil. Um, it was actually thought to be extinct since about 1924, and it was only rediscovered relatively recently, 2004, um, just in, in one area, one particular area where the, the plants that it seems to require are still, still in good population. Probably all it needs is some kind of predator control uh, protection from that, and again, you, the idea would be to grow that population out if you could find suitable areas. And number four? It's a very interesting-looking wee thing <laughs> with a dreadful name. <laughs> it's actually a plant. It's called Isoetes afkirkii, and then in brackets, CHR247118A, Lake Omapuri. Just trips off your tongue. It does, it does. But I take it the fact it's got such a dreadful name is it must be pretty rare and not well-known. Yes, this is uh, an example, and it's actually quite common in New Zealand, particularly with plants and invertebrates, that... Uh, there's very few scientists working on them, so we, we know there's these these groups of animals around that we think are, are, are species, but they haven't got any proper name as yet. And this is obviously one of them, which is why it's got such a long, convoluted name. But uh, it does hinder conservation work, because you know when you don't know a name, it gets very hard to get people enthused on, on, on actually looking after it. So I take it it's got a limited geographic distribution? Is it just found in Lake Omapuri? We're not 100% sure whether it is just found in Lake Omapuri. Similar plants are found in at least a couple of other sites in Northland, and whether they're still there, we're not sure. It's a aquatic fern relative, and so it has these spores that uh, settle into the mud and germinate. And Lake Omapuri had a very chequered history and uh, suffered greatly from eutrophic uh, plant growth, basically swamped the whole lake so much so that people could walk on the weeds that were growing on the surface. And so it was no wonder that this little plant that grows on the, the bottom of the lake pretty much disappeared. They were lucky that they did a survey and realised it was getting quite quite rare and, and managed to collect some plants. And, and there's some scientists at Niwa that have been tending these plants in, in a little aquarium ever since. But uh, you know the local iwi are now getting quite excited about this plant. It's part of their heritage that's... Um, something special about their one little place and they're hoping to go down and visit the plant and, and start looking at ways of bringing it back and, and the technical difficulties of, of bringing it back to the lake. Number five on the list is fairy terns. You've already mentioned those. That's right, New Zealand fairy tern, which must be probably surprising to most people. It's actually our most endangered bird. We're talking about a dozen pairs that are left and they went down to maybe three or four pairs at one stage. Uh, and very limited distribution, so beaches between Whangarei and Auckland, and they're hit by all sorts of kind of threats, so predation obviously, but there's all sorts of disturbance, there's the changes in the habitat on those beach kind of systems. And they, they're one that's been the focus of reasonably intensive management along those beaches for, for a number of years now, so it's turned it round. Not a big difference from three or four pairs to a dozen, but it's starting to give you know, people confidence that we've, we've got some tools or approaches in place to kind of change that trajectory. It was one that's quite nice to have on the list because even though it's on the top ten, it's actually on its way back out of the list. 
Number six is limestone cress. And New Zealand has a, a range of limestone outcrops, and each of those sort of areas have a, a range of distinctive plants. And some of those are actually really, really quite rare. And the limestone cress is, is probably just one of the examples. There's probably several others that could have been on this top ten that possibly should have been instead of this. There's only about 30 plants left on the original site. There's a small population in captivity as well. But it's one of those ones that uh, they've been doing a lot of hard work and they're managing to, to keep it at the site where it is, is found. But it's down on your hands and knees, micro-weeding around the few plants that are remaining. And so we're thinking, well, are there other ways that we should manage limestone to, to provide homes for all of these plants? Chesterfield skink, that's a gorgeous-looking animal. Oh, a lovely-looking animal, yeah. Another one of these ones where really you're talking about one location, uh, the site Chesterfield on the South Island West Coast. Unlike uh, fairy terns and things that are, we're seeing the right trajectory, we're seeing the wrong one with, with Chesterfield skinks. So the numbers seem to be in decline. This one location, that's all we've got. Predators are probably one of the things happening there. Changes in habitat, so there are big changes in, in those areas. It, it's needing a kind of a boulder field habitat that we're losing to agriculture in some areas. So understanding those habitat requirements, understanding those kind of limiting factors would be a start. We don't have a lot of time for that one. Number eight. This is a lovely plant. It's one of my favourites, but unfortunately it's one of the ones that seems to have absolutely everything thrown at it and everything bad thrown at it. It's a, it's a peppercress. It's uh, related to the cabbages and, and various other nice-to-eat things, and unfortunately everything seems to like to eat it. Everything from deer, uh, rabbits, uh, caterpillars, various beetles moulds, viruses, just about everything. And it grows in a, a very exposed rocky coastal headlands and so it's already been battered by storms and things like that but it's used to that but on top of all this and uh, I was just talking to, to some of the people on that team just, just in the last couple of days and they say they've had a bad storm and they've got real fears for the last of the wild population. So even since we've written this list, this is one that you know could very well be up there at number one by now. They've got some plants growing in cultivation and collecting seed, but they're running constantly just to stay in place. Only two ways off our list. There's a, there's a good way <laughs> and a bad way. Number nine? Eyelash seaweed. Uh, this, is a, this is really new to me. It's new to me my, too. I've never heard of yeah, it. Yeah, a tiny seaweed that really looks like a human eyelash. It's another one of these extraordinarily limited distribution, boulders in two sites, separated reasonably far along the Kaikoura coast. The numbers of, of the plants there fluctuates from time to time. We don't really know why, so a lot more to be learned about that one. And who scrapes into your list at number 10? It's a plant called Pimelia actea, which uh, is some people call sand dune daphne. It's a, a little wee shrub. And like the fairy tern, it's, it's suffered because our beaches have changed quite a lot. This doesn't occur right on the front of the beaches where the loose blown sand is like the fairy tern, but occurs on the back of the dunes where the, 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 they become, start to become a bit more stable and there's water lies over the winter. But what's happening is that uh, 
this occurs in the Manawatuan Rangitiki, that the sand blow was so bad off the original dunes that it was you know, destroying good farmland, swamping good farmland behind it. So there's been a big emphasis on, on dune stabilisation, using marram grass and pine plantations and all sorts of things like that, which is displacing the habitat for this. But also, for some reason, dunes seem to be places that weeds absolutely love. And so there's a range of of weeds that just absolutely swamp these these damp sites because they're, they're a good you know one of the few good places to grow in a dune, and for some reason snails really love dunes as well, so it's having a bit of a battle. But this one really does need some nice people looking after it for a while, but it also needs some bigger thinking on how we can have dunes that can move, and have these natural systems occur again. So, Mike, you mentioned at the beginning that. You know, originally your father had said, oh, it'd be easy to raise a million dollars. How's the fundraising gone? Well, he was actually right. <laughs> it is actually not that bad to raise a million dollars. And we haven't started the fundraising stage as yet, but uh, our current balance is $1.6 million that we've raised, which is a fantastic effort. And, um, you know, it does show that it is possible and it's just requires people to, to, to start working on it and, and there's some great people coming on board who are saying, yeah, we, we will help you raise the money and there's all sorts of people, even school kids over in America are starting to raise money for us. It's, 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 it's an absolutely fantastic response. One of our ambassadors had a nice phrase for it. He said, there are people out there who are looking to go from success to significance. We're looking to, to support projects over the length of time that you know make it sustainable, and that's one of the reasons why we've said, well, we actually need $30 million instead of that original $1 million. Because if you have $30 million, the income from that can fund quite a lot of conservation work in New Zealand, and, and it's sustainable. It would be going on and on. It's a, a gift that keeps on giving. That was Mike Thorson, and you also heard Phil Seddon, trustees for the Endangered Species Foundation. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kakite Ano. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.